Welcome to Rise Up Firebird, a podcast about women who have transformed their lives. Such change can come in many forms. Some women are dreamers, some are challengers, others are navigators or survivors. But what all of these women have in common is that they never gave up on themselves. They forged their character and found their strength. In sharing these stories, I hope you gain inspiration to never give up on yourself either. The firebird flies to give hope to others. Joan Rivers You probably know much more than you give yourself credit for, and your ability to learn is greater than you think. If I was to call Joan Rivers a firebird, she would disagree. She would say she's a bumblebee. Joan Rivers loved bumblebees so much that she designed herself a brooch of a bumblebee and wore it as her own personal motif. You may suspect that Joan's affection for bees was because of her rapier wit, which could be described as having a sting in its tail. But that's not the reason. Joan loved bumblebees because they defied the odds. Scientists have marvelled, never understanding how a bee with its shape and wingspan is able to fly. The laws of aerodynamics do not explain it. Yet, as we all know, the bumblebee doesn't just fly, it buzzes. It travels with such speed that there is a saying as busy as a bumblebee. In this way, Joan gained inspiration from bumblebees. They helped her to believe that anything is possible. However, Joan's bumblebee brooch was her second favourite item of jewellery. Her most precious brooch was the one her husband Edgar bought her of a tortoise. Edgar said that this was the animal that best described Joan. A tough exterior, always sticking its neck out, determined to get ahead, taking its time and most importantly, never giving up. Joan's daughter, Melissa, had a different take. She said her mother was a pack horse. She had an insatiable work ethic that didn't diminish as she grew older. As Joan would continue performing her comedy sketches well into her 80s, her daughter grew increasingly concerned. One day, Melissa observed her mother resting her eyes in between takes. Worried about her welfare, Melissa asked her mother if she was feeling okay. Joan opened her eyes and said, Stop distracting me, Melissa. I'm doing a visualisation technique for my next project. I'll leave you to decide whether Joan Rivers is a firebird, a bumblebee, a tortoise or a pack horse. Let's take pack horse first. Joan's ambitions in life were forged by her Russian immigrant parents who had fled to America after World War I. They had both been victims of the devastating pogrom attacks against Jews. It meant that they had to leave everything behind and start afresh. For Joan's mother, it fostered an upwardly mobile attitude to recover the lifestyle she had once known in Russia. Joan's father rose out of his poverty-stricken circumstances to become a well-established doctor. 
His experience had reinforced the need for his daughters to be educated because he learned that that was the one thing that no one else could take away from you. As such, Joan and her sister Barbara were encouraged to work hard and do well at school. Barbara was an outstanding student who excelled in all subjects. She even learnt Russian one summer just because she felt like it. Joan was determined not to be cast in her elder sister's shadow and worked even harder to catch up. This paid off when Joan graduated with a degree in English Literature and Anthropology at New York's prestigious Barnard College in 1954. Joan's parents had a second expectation on Joan. It was not enough to be well educated. They also expected their daughters to marry well too. Joan complied. At the age of 22, she married the son of a Jewish businessman. Their marriage, however, lasted six months. By this stage, Joan thought, that's it. She had had enough in doing what everyone else wanted her to do. She was now going to live her life her way and decided that she was going to have a career in show business. Joan had always loved the escapism of being on the stage. School days were lonely. Joan often felt overweight and unattractive and longed for acceptance from her peers. As years of plastic surgery later revealed, Joan was someone who regularly felt deeply unhappy in herself. Once performing, however, Joan could escape these worries and literally become someone else. That sense of belonging and connection was something she always strived for and which she found from an audience. However much her parents might have indulged Joan's extracurriculum activities when she was young, they were genuinely distressed when she told them that she wanted to pursue these as a career. In fact, Joan's parents thought that she had lost her mind and her father even tried to get her committed into a mental asylum. Perhaps not surprisingly, this led to a complete breakdown in their relationship. Her parents disowned her. Joan left with no allowance and slept in her car. She was a divorced young woman struggling to get by. Her life had just imploded. She might have continued to work hard all of her life, but the pack horse had finally removed her blinkers. She was determined to follow what she referred to as the dream and become an actress. The next stage in Joan's life mirrored the determination of a tortoise. Joan worked in a variety of jobs. Her first audience was at the Rockefeller Centre, where she worked as a tour guide. She then worked at advertising agents, whilst trying her best to get a foothold on the stage in the evenings. Joan was initially successful in being cast in an off-Broadway play in 1957, opposite a young, unknown Barbara Streisand. However, such opportunities were not readily available. Determined to make more of her life, after work she lingered at the many clubs in Greenwich Village and found that the only way to get on stage was by doing comedy. She mixed with all the people who were later to become big names in the 60s, Woody Allen, Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel and Carly Simon. Yet success eluded Joan. She watched as everyone else moved on to greater things. All the while, 
Joan continued to work on her act. The big show of the time was The Tonight Show. Joan knew that that was where her future lay. She auditioned for a slot and was rejected seven times. Working behind the scenes, she got a job writing gags for their new host, Johnny Carson. Johnny was impressed, took Joan under his wing and finally Joan was invited onto the show. Johnny was so charmed by Joan that on live TV he said she was going to be a star. At that precise moment, Joan's life changed. She was celebrated as an overnight success in 1965, yet this recognition had taken nearly 10 years to achieve. After being noticed on the show for how funny she was, Johnny Carson recommended that Joan meet his friend, producer Edgar Rosenberg. Edgar was looking for someone to add some spark to a script he was working on. Indeed, sparks did fly. Joan and Edgar quickly fell in love and they got married within five days of meeting each other. Joan said that they both knew what they wanted out of life, had the same values and could make each other laugh. So what more did they need to know about each other for a successful marriage? Let's assume then that when Edgar described his wife as a tortoise, he was referring to her career and not their speedy marriage. Edgar supported Joan as her manager and the two were a strong, personal and professional double act. For the next 20 years, Joan became a regular on The Tonight Show, then a co-host and finally the main anchor whenever Johnny Carson was on holiday. In total, Joan hosted 80 shows on her own and forged her way as the funny, plain talker in contrast to Johnny Carson's straight guy act. If you watch Graham Norton, the host of our most popular chat show today, he owes a lot to Joan Rivers. He has adopted the same style of quips and side comments that Joan created and made so popular. During this time, Joan also worked at various clubs, often as a support act for male comedians. Throughout her life, she kept a filofax system of jokes, all written on index cards and filed alphabetically. She diligently prepared for every act. Soon, her filing cabinet took up the space of a small room. Right up until the end of her life, she obsessed over her diary to ensure that it was full of commitments. She joked that she always had to wear sunglasses when she turned the pages, as she was so afraid to see any white spaces. Some people would say that Joan's act was honest and provocative, whereas others would say it was crude and vulgar. She made jokes about childbirth and abortion at a time when some people considered it unladylike to even mention such topics on television. She said, the insiders were all telling me, you can't say that, Joan, you're a woman. In response, Joan claimed that the world was her stage and as life held no punches, Neither would she. She said that comedy is meant to address such things because it is often the only way such sensitive topics can be openly aired in public. She gained a reputation of saying what everyone else was thinking. She also appeared on stage whilst heavily pregnant, which was another bold and pioneering move at the time, paving the way for such acts as Amy Schumer to do so over 50 years later. Joan learnt to balance home life with her new daughter Melissa 
alongside her rising career. Then in 1986, there was a major turning point for Joan. After 20 years since her first appearance on the show, Joan learnt that Johnny Carson's contract with The Tonight Show was renewed for another two years. Joan's was renewed for only one. There was no mention of her being listed as a possible replacement after Johnny's departure. Joan said she saw the writing on the wall and she quipped, the writing said, your number's up. Uncertain of her future and reaching an age in show business where women were often seen to be past their sell-by date, Joan feared that she would be left in the wilderness. At this time, Fox TV approached her to do her own talk show. It appeared to be just the right thing at just the right time. The condition was that Joan would be going head-to-head with Carson, even fighting over who would host the same guests. Johnny saw it as a betrayal. He abruptly ended their personal friendship, which had always been mutually supportive for many years. Joan felt that she had no other option. She was grateful for Johnny's support and belief in her, and the opportunities he had afforded to her in the past. However, Joan's options were becoming limited, and it was time to step out on her own. Joan, together with her husband manager, Edgar, had finally achieved what they had always wanted. Joan was to be an anchor host on her own primetime television show. It was the culmination of performing at dingy bars, always being last on the bill, and staying in dodgy motels away from her family. It had taken over 25 years for Joan to get there. Yet such success was short-lived. In 12 months, Joan's life would take another dramatic turn. Joan's husband Edgar began to suffer from a nervous breakdown. It was later discovered that the medication he'd been using for a heart problem had created a chemical imbalance in his brain. As the pressure of managing Joan's career change mounted, Edgar's condition got worse. The executives at Fox were less than sympathetic. They told Joan that she needed to sack her husband. Joan outright refused. She absolutely was bound to stand by Edgar and knew that any further stress would be too much for him to handle. Standing firm, She said that they came as a pair, and if he went, she would go too. Joan believed that she could use her star power to influence the executives to change their mind. In response, Fox simply sacked them both. At 52, Joan's career was now in the wilderness. She had burned her bridges with NBC, who ran The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and was now out of favour with the main alternative network, Fox. Edgar became even more depressed by what had happened. Joan did what she could, but found it hard to be the source of strength when she was battling her own fears and insecurities. They both agreed to a temporary separation, but after three days they resolved their differences. Edgar phoned. He said he wanted to sort things out, and he knew he needed to get professional help. Finally, they both felt that they had turned a corner and would see each other the next day. Edgar was still suffering from his illness, however, and that evening committed suicide. Joan was devastated. 
as well as the shock and grief that inevitably follows someone's death, she also felt guilty. Her daughter Melissa, struggling with her own emotions, blamed Joan's three-day separation for Edgar's death and refused to speak with her. Mother and daughter were estranged for seven years. Despite her working schedule, Joan and Melissa had always been close and Joan had tried to keep a tight family unit. Now Joan suffered the loss of both these key relationships at once, at a time when she needed them most. She was now left with nothing, no career, no husband and no daughter. There was also the accumulation of lots of other matters to deal with too, the little things that having a husband and a manager helped to sort out, the day-to-day finances, the household admin and the rising debt that Edgar had tried to hide from her. Edgar had always been the linchpin in Joan's life, managing everything for her. Whilst Joan struggled with her loss and grief, every other aspect of her life also fell apart. It is a common expression in the business that tragedy plus time equals comedy. It took a long time before there was anything in Joan's life to laugh about. Nobody wanted to hire a female comedian whose husband had just committed suicide. Joan developed bulimia and after repeatedly purging herself in unhygienic public toilets, she knew that she needed to get help. Her therapist said that Joan's control over food was because she felt so helpless in all of the other areas of her life. It may also be the reason why she embraced plastic surgery so heavily later on, too. One evening, Joan sat with a gun, contemplating whether to kill herself. Whilst in her despair, her pet dog crawled into her lap, and she took this as a sign that she was still needed. This is when Joan's life entered the firebird stage, but her emergence from the ashes took many years. Joan sought therapy and found strength in doing volunteer work, such as delivering meals to AIDS patients in New York at the height of the epidemic. She continued such goodwill activities throughout her life as a way to cultivate gratitude and appreciate that no matter how bad things are, there is always somebody worse off than yourself. In picking herself up again, Joan said it was important to acknowledge what she had lost from Edgar's death, but also to recognise and embrace what this new experience had given her. She realised that alongside the tragedy, her husband's death and the loss of her career opened up options that wouldn't have otherwise been available to her. She was alone and feeling adrift in life, but she was also free and uninhibited to pursue something new. Joan decided to move from the West Coast back to her beloved New York. She found comfort in decorating her new apartment and delighted in creating a peach-coloured bedroom just for herself. She undertook a two-year renovation project, which took on greater significance as her attempt to carve out her own space in the world. Joan said, Like most women of my generation, I had grown up expecting a man to take care of me and make all the right financial decisions, as Edgar had always done. But now I knew that I could rely only on myself. It was time to learn things I had never paid attention to and to take responsibility for my own life. Joan embraced the prospect of dating again 
and later found love in a new eight-year relationship with an army veteran. Joan decided she would do whatever it took to get back onto primetime television. She said, I figured if I'm funny enough, you're going to have to let me back. She took the early morning TV slots that no one else wanted to do. Then, in 1991, in what many celebrities would consider to be scraping the bottom of the barrel, she sold jewellery on the KVC shopping channel. Joan seized whatever opportunity she could and she turned it around, making QVC a household name. Two years in, however, QVC was taken over by the same executive who had fired Joan from Fox in 1987, which had triggered all the personal tragedies in her life. Joan considered that the best revenge would be to make a success of the show. Joan was so good at selling jewellery that the shopping channel encouraged her to expand her role, design the items herself and take over the business. Of course, Joan gracefully accepted. Joan was back. It was not necessarily where she wanted to be as a comedian, but at least she had gotten out of her perilous circumstances. Joan desperately wanted to get back onto the stage again, but no late-night chat show would host her as a guest, never mind consider her as a presenter. Joan was resourceful. Thinking about what else she could do, she figured that the only guaranteed way to get back onto the stage would be to write her own Broadway play. Joan set herself to work and called it Sally Marr and her escorts. Sally Marr was the mother of Lenny Bruce, a famous comedian whose style was similar to Joan's and who had supported her during her early career at Greenwich Village. It was the perfect showcase for Joan to demonstrate her own comic abilities. She also found it a cathartic experience to use her writing as a way to reminisce on her comedy beginnings and appreciate how far she had come. Joan's play was nominated for a Tony Award and the reviews went through the roof. Joan planned to take the show to Los Angeles, London and Australia. Joan's professional fortunes had turned around. She was now cancelling invitations to do a talk show, a situation comedy, a concert tour and a show at Las Vegas so that she could focus her attention on the play. She had found performing it to be emotionally fulfilling. It was a true expression of who she was and what's more, people loved it. Joan had finally found success and enjoyment in her career, all under her own steam. However, without her husband manager Edgar to support her, Joan failed to appreciate the expenses involved in producing such a tour. Despite its popularity, the show became too costly to produce and it was pulled after only five months. Joan was distraught that something that she had put her heart and soul into had flopped and had a huge financial loss. At least Joan had the shopping channel business to fall back on. In fact, it became so successful that Joan was encouraged to take the company public in exchange for a payout of $16 million. This was extraordinary for someone who had been scratching for most of her life to earn anything that compared with her male contemporaries. It would provide Joan with the financial security she had craved all her life. 
deal tied Joan into selling more jewellery, investing all of her business interests into one umbrella company. Joan saw no cause for concern. Throughout all of the ups and downs of her career, she knew that selling jewellery was something she could always do and rely upon. Joan, however, failed to realise that the fortunes of the stock market is more precarious than those of show business. The business that had bought hers fell into a $37 million deficit, and as Joan's company was the only one with any collateral, the creditors came after her. Suddenly, Joan found that her name, her income, her future earnings from jewellery, TV, book deals, and anything else of value would be used to pay the debt. Joan was now again without a career and in financial dire straits. This time, she was 60 years old, but if there is one thing she had learnt, was that she had to pick herself up and start all over again. In 1994, Joan was asked by the E! Entertainment Network to do a pre-award show at the Golden Globes. It was considered to be a lowly role, literally grabbing an opportunity to talk to the stars as they walked past. Yet this entirely played to Joan's strengths. She enjoyed catching the celebrities off guard with her depreciating jibes, and her sense of fun was irresistible to those who would otherwise pass by. Joan turned the red carpet into a bigger star attraction than the main event, with more audiences tuning in to watch these off-the-cuff interviews than the main award ceremonies. What proved to be an even sweeter moment was that the show allowed Joan and her daughter Melissa to cement their reconciliation, with the two presenting together and smiling at each other from either side of the outdoor auditorium. With these interviews, Joan Rivers turned the red carpet into a celebrity institution. Hosting these events led on to further opportunities for Joan as the presenter of the Fashion Police and also as a contestant on The Celebrity Apprentice in 2009. At 75 years old, Joan might have been nervous about accepting such an opportunity, but on principle, she could not turn it down. It was the first time she'd been offered anything from NBC television since her departure from The Tonight Show in favour of Fox in 1986. Yet age was no hindrance as far as Joan was concerned. She competed with the other brash contestants and won. Of course she did. Were you ever in any doubt? As Joan said, I suddenly knew that I could do it again. My alternative career had been pulling myself up from rock bottom. I had survived being fat and poor and unwanted. I had survived being called a bitch and no talent and a has-been. I had survived being told that I was unfunny, that I was too funny, that I was too young and that I was too old. I had even survived tumbling from the top of the world into a unique hell. Joan had dealt with her husband's suicide, her daughter's estrangement, her career collapse and repeated financial ruin. Nothing that anybody could do could hurt her in the way she'd been hurt before. She was finally at the stage of her life where she was tired having to comply with what people wanted. Any threat, any misfortune, any insult was nothing 
compared with what she'd already been through and survived. Joan had earned her bumblebee stripes. Another thing that Joan said was her source of strength was that she was furious about everything. There are so many injustices in life, not just in her life, but in general. Why do bad things happen to the good and the innocent? Why are there so many hypocrites and charlatans who get away with it? Why is it that no matter how many times you pick yourself up, you get knocked down again? Her anger fueled her comedy. It was a way to poke fun and complain, but also to resolve how she felt about things through humour. This is perhaps why she became so resilient. So what do you think? Which animal's characteristics best describe Joan? The work ethic of a pack horse, or the defiance of a bumblebee? The persistence of the tortoise, or the resilience of the firebird? The truth is, Joan was all of these things and more throughout her life. There are times when we need to take on different characteristics, and we can take inspiration from other forms of life and the wonders that they teach us. We all go through stages that require different skills and qualities and we can adapt as we rise to each challenge. That's what makes us extraordinary as human beings and of course we are the only life form that has the ability to laugh which as Joan also shows is often a saving grace in our worst moments. What's interesting about Joan is that she never forgot that she had these abilities within her. Just because they hadn't been used in a while doesn't mean that they go away. She could become a firebird at each difficult moment in her life and transform herself again because she knew that she had done it before. I love the idea that we can take stock of all that we've achieved and been through and know that we have all of those skills ready to be repeated whenever the need arises. Once you know you can do something, believe that you can do it again. It is easy to always think of our lives in forward motion and in different stages of development, yet we can always call upon the inner strength that has been forged by our experience. Think back to the times when you have been tested, when things seemed unbearable and too much to withstand. The truth is that you survived. Whatever ability you had to get through, you still have that inside of you now. So the next time you are faced with a challenge, think about what you have been through already. Know your own strengths and call upon them again. There will be times when it seems like everything is against you and it will take strong wings to fly. Shake them out and believe in all that you are. You can do it. Thank you for listening to Rise Up Firebird with Grace or Carolyn. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can find me under Grace underscore or Carolyn for details of forthcoming episodes. The music is Brahms Cello Sonata in F, played by John Michelle and available under the Winky Media Commons license.
Please join me for another episode of Rise Up Firebird, when I'll be giving details of the next woman who has transformed her life. In the meantime, I hope this gives you the encouragement you need to rise, spread your wings and fly. Rise up, Firebird.